there's an enormous amount of activity here in this space right now, and it's certainly an area that we're following very closely. Welcome to Talking the Cure, Hogan Lovell's Life Sciences and Healthcare Podcast. I'm Rob Church, a partner in the firm's FDA Pharmaceutical and Biotechnology Practice Group and head of the firm's cl clinical trials working group. Our usual host for this podcast, Julius Bulow, has stepped aside for today and left me the stage to host this episode. I think we have an extremely interesting topic for everyone on today's podcast, and we're very excited to bring this to you. In particular, we'll be talking about the recent focus by FDA and the United States Congress on ways to enhance the diversity of subjects that participate in clinical trials. I'm going to discuss this topic with my colleagues Stephanie Agu, Sarah Thompson-Schick, and Akosia Tufor. Before we jump in, would the three of you like to introduce yourselves? Hi, my name is Stephanie Agu, and I am an associate at Hogan Levels, where my practice includes a variety of clinical trial concerns, advertising and promotion issues, and drug exclusivity questions. Hi, I'm Sarah Thompson-Schick. I'm a senior associate on the pharmaceuticals and biotechnology team here at Hogan Levels, where I spend my practice on some clinical trial issues, as well as uh, advertising and promotion, and also some other pre-commercial issues that come up. I work with uh, companies on corporate deals as well, uh, focusing on the, the FDA regulatory side. Hi, my name is Akosia Tufour. I am a junior associate in the pharma biotech practice at Hogan Levels, and I am working on a variety of different matters, but mostly focusing on clinical trials, contracting, regenerative medicine, and helping clients navigate the regulatory landscape of human cell and tissue products. Um, and I also work on a variety of pre-market and post-market matters for drug and biologics clients. Thanks, everybody. So to kick things off, Sarah, why, why don't you begin? What has the agency historically done in the field of clinical trial diversity? Over the last decade or so, we've seen a flurry of activity in this space. But I always think about this issue kicking back to when I first got started just in the world of clinical trials before I became a lawyer and thinking about very briefly by Dill and its approval in 2005. And it's a, a drug that was targeted specifically for African-American patients who identified as African-American. And the, the conversation around that product was really about, you know, where the agency and the industry was going with respect to personalized medicine products. But what we've seen more now is the agency really thinking beyond personalized medicine in this space and, and focusing on how we can get diverse populations of patients more broadly involved in clinical trials and making sure that the patient population uh, enrolled in clinical trials is actually representative of the end population, the, the users, the, the consumers who will be getting access to these products once they're on the market. But we've seen a lot, for example, more recently with respect to the COVID-19 pandemic and how FDA and the industry has become more active in recognizing that we need to reach patients where they are. But going back a little bit, in 2011, FDA established the Office of Minority Health 
and health equity, in part to promote clinical trial enrollment and participation in research among diverse populations. In 2011, the agency also engaged in a a collaboration with the Society for Women's Health Research um, and FDA's Office of Women's Health. Uh, It was titled Dialogues on Diversifying Clinical Trials. And the focus was on the the lack of representation of women and minorities in particular in, in clinical trials and just what can the agency do? And then that leads us into... 2012, you have the Food and Drug Safety Innovation Act, or FDASIA, which was signed into law. In part, FDA was required to produce a report on inaction items that it could take to make sure that the demographic sub- subgroups that are included in clinical trials is increased. And in part, they released a report in 2013 and a subsequent action plan in 2014 And one of the key findings in the 2013 report was that whites represented a high percentage of clinical trial study participation for biologic drug and medical device applications, while other racial subgroups were underrepresented. This is information that we already knew, but this was a a move with FDA taking action and actually producing that data that was accessible so that we could really get a clearer picture of the lack of representation in clinical trials. And then in the 2014 action plan, um, the FDA action plan to enhance the collection and availability of demographic subgroup data, there were three priorities that the agency set forth, and they wanted to make sure that there was quality, participation, and transparency relative to data collection that bear Barriers to access and to participation in clinical trials were limited or eliminated, and that there's also an assurance of demographic subgroup data availability and transparency. So FDA's been continuously having these conversations. They've also had the drug trial snapshots, which also have provided a breakdown on subject enrollment by demographic subgroups and across all trials. And then we get to FDARA, or the, the Food and Drug Administration Reauthorization Act of 2017, in particular Section 610. And there were a couple of things that the agency was required, but most, required to do, but most notably is they were required to convene a public meeting on clinical trial eligibility criteria. And they had a workshop in April of 2018 uh, with different stakeholders across the healthcare and clinical trial ecosystem And the discussion wasn't necessarily specifically focused on clinical trial diversity with respect to racial and ethnic minorities or or gender representation, but it really was a broader conversation about how the agency can ensure there is an increase in in participation in clinical trials by thinking about the inclusion and exclusion criteria, which can often limit the types of people that are enrolled in clinical studies. And then you get to, in in 2020, the guidance that FDA rolled out, which was a part of its requirements out of FDARA, enhancing the diversity of clinical trial populations 
eligibility criteria, enrollment practices, and trial design. So that came out in November 2020. And when it was rolled out, it was also talked about in the context of COVID-19, as well as the requirements from FADARA. But again, this particular guidance was really about making sure that the design and the execution of clinical trials was truly inclusive. But with all the guidance, with all the conversations uh, at the agency, with the workshops and everything that we've seen, FDA has still been hesitant to require that sponsors diversify their clinical trial programs. They haven't created any specific regulatory requirements. They've not gone through notice and comment rulemaking, which Stephanie will talk about a little bit later. So that's an interesting part about all of this is that while the agency and the industry both acknowledge that this is important, there haven't been any explicit requirements for clinical trial diversity. Thank you, Sarah. That's really helpful. And I, I'm curious for your views, what the, the various factors are that sort of, you know, driving this, this push for greater diversity in studies. On the one hand, it seems like there's, there's definitely some social justice issues at play here, but there, there's also obviously... I, I think FDA focusing on the, the science, making sure that there's sufficient data arising from clinical trials to support labeling that is actually tailored for use with specific groups in the United States. Is that right? Or, or do you have a different perspective on things? I definitely think that's right. I also think that there has been this period in our society over the last couple of years where in various respects, we've all had to pause and think about the racial unrest and the impact that COVID-19 in particular has had on racial and ethnic minority communities. So in seeing that the, the percentage of individuals in racial and ethnic minority communities were impacted with respect to hospitalizations, had higher rates of hospitalizations, higher rates of deaths due to COVID-19. There seems to have been this eye-opening, so to speak, of we have to make sure if we're going to do research on vaccines, if we're going to do research on COVID prophylactic products or treatment therapeutics, we have to make sure that we are including as broad of a group as, as we possibly can. And we're seeing this conversation more and more in minority communities about making sure that they are represented, that they feel like their their voices, that they're that they are truly represented in clinical trial activities to make sure that when when these drugs get to the market, that they feel comfortable having these conversations with their physicians to to ask the right questions. You know, what are the data look like? Was there appropriate data collected among the Latino community or African American community? And what did that look like? And and how might that work for me as a patient? So really getting down to to patients having more information and being more empowered in having these conversations, not just with their physicians, but also among themselves, with their families, with their friends about these treatments. Yeah, th thank you, Sarah. That, that, that's a great perspective. And, and so, Stephanie, I, I know that recently FDA has issued a, a new draft guidance document on diversity on, in clinical trials. And we've spoken at length about this, uh, you and I, in the past. I think this is a, a really ambitious effort for, for uh, from FDA to kind of enhance uh, industry's efforts in, in this space. Can you give us a little background on that guidance document? Sure. So as Sarah mentioned, FDA's interest in the clinical trial diversity space is not new. However, what is new is that in April of this year, FDA released a draft guidance to, to really direct sponsors to increase the racial and ethnic diversity of their clinical trials. 
So in this document, agent, the agency is recommending that all sponsors submit a race and ethnicity diversity plan, which FDA refers to as the plan with a capital P, before initiating pivotal clinical trials. And so the purpose of the plan and really the guidance is for sponsors to outline an approach to have a racially and ethnically diverse patient population in the trial and the specific cohorts of each group would need to be broadly justified by the prevalence of the disease under evaluation and the U.S. population. This guidance is pretty sweeping. It applies to all drugs and devices for which clinical studies are intended to support a marketing submission, as well as drugs under an IND and devices under an IDE. Now, what is the content of the guidance? So the agency wants sponsors to focus on reasons that could lead the sponsor to believe that there is a differential safety or effectiveness associated with race and ethnicity related to the disease under evaluation or effectiveness or even the drug class and go from there. Evidence can come from real world evidence, literature, and other sources that would inform the sponsor's enrollment or recruitment plan, the clinical trial site selection, and the design of the trial itself. So there are four main components of the plan that I think are worth discussing. So FDA recommends that the plan would include first, a description of the data on the pathophysiology of the disease under study. The plan would also include a summary of the proposed clinical trial program and how it would address the inclusion of underrepresented racial and ethnic populations. So this component refers to how the study design, the eligibility criteria, and even a site selection may affect the enrollment of subjects from underrepresented racial and ethnic backgrounds. This component is also where the sponsor would identify any findings indicating that there could be a differential safety and effectiveness of the product among certain racial and ethnic populations. So for example, let's say there is a skin cancer detecting imaging device. If this device's performance is impacted by the amount of melanin in a patient's skin, that would mean that the performance of the device is affected by racial factors of the patient. If this data is available, then that is the kind of data FDA would want to see detailed in this component of the plan. Now, two other aspects of the plan would be for the sponsor to state the defined enrollment goals that's based on the disease epidemiology and also specific strategies that the sponsor plans to use to enroll and retain diverse participants. On the timing, FDA would request sponsors to submit a plan by the end of the phase two meeting but the agency in its guidance clearly seems to expect to have discussions with the sponsors on the content of the plan before the plan's actually submitted to the agency. So FDA suggests here that it's in the sponsor's best interest to engage FDA on this front as soon as practicable. Even after the plan is submitted and during the period in which the trial is conducted, FDA will expect regular updates on the status of the enrollment of members of these populations. So, Rob, as you sort of hinted at the beginning, there's two things that are particularly notable about the draft guidance I think is, are worth calling out here. So first, it has elements in common with pending congressional legislation, which we'll touch on a little bit later. And secondly, FDA did not undergo the notice and comment rulemaking process to impose these new diversity requirements. So instead, the agency is creating what looks like new requirements in a guidance document, and again, FDA guidance documents are not intended to be legally binding, 
but the requirements detailed in this document are pretty strong. So that begs the question as to why FDA has chosen to do it this way. So there's two possible ways I believe that we can view this. Um, as Sarah hinted at, FDA has issued guidance on this topic. It's not new to the area of clinical trial diversity. In a 2016 guidance document on the collection of racial and ethnic data in clinical trials, FDA very briefly recommends that sponsors submit a plan addressing the inclusion of clinically relevant subpopulations. So it's possible that FDA may view this recent April guidance as just an extension of its previous guidance document and thus could say, oh, there, aren't, there are no new requirements in this new April guidance. We're just simply building on what we mentioned in 2016. Or perhaps FDA chose to issue the guidance sooner rather than later because it may not think that it currently has the authority to issue new requirements and regulations on this topic and in the manner described in the guidance. But it could also believe congressional authority is forthcoming and this guidance could be a good way to set the groundwork on this. But the guidance is still in draft form, and in fact, the comment period is actually still open. So there are still many unanswered questions with this guidance, and I just want to highlight a handful. So I think something that industry would want to know is what impact, if any, will the quality of the plan and enrollment challenges have on the drug's approval? FDA clearly expects to be in touch with the agency throughout the plan's development and ask sponsors to use their best efforts to achieve the enrollment goals. How will FDA determine whether a sponsor has actually used its best efforts? It's not clear in the guidance how that will be assessed. Another question is how will the agency incentivize sponsors to comply with the plan? What will FDA do if sponsors do not submit a diversity plan? For trials that are currently ongoing, do these sponsors have to submit a diversity plan for these trials? So the guidance is just guidance, which means it's only recommendations, which also means that sponsors do not necessarily have to comply so that, beg that makes this question a little bit more pertinent. It's just not clear whether the agency or how the agency would incentivize sponsors to comply. And then another thing I want to focus on here concerns the potential post-marketing requirements related to diversity on sponsors. In the guidance, FDA makes it clear that it is open to imposing post-marketing requirements on sponsors who have not succeeded in achieving their enrollment goal. It's also important to note that in at least the past year, we have seen FDA impose post-marketing requirements on sponsors when it has felt that the trial did not include enough representation from members of a particular group. So there's already some post-marketing requirement activity happening within the context of clinical, clinical trial diversity. However, as we know, currently, sponsors do not always complete the post-marketing requirements, and it remains to be seen if FDA will impose new requirements to ensure that sponsors see these additional studies through. So essentially, to sum this up, the guidance sets out an ambitious framework to get sponsors thinking seriously about diversity, but it's not final. And there remain some gaps as to how sponsors will be expected to comply and how the agency will operationalize this framework. Great. Thanks, Stephanie. I think that that's it's a really good overview of, of the guidance document, and some of the, the key considerations. In, in terms of some of the unanswered questions, I, I think another issue that, that we've received a, a fair number of uh, questions from, from our clients is uh, what companies can and should do to actually increase enrollment at, at uh, study sites of, of a kind of more diverse study populations. And, you know, we, we've seen a number of tactics employed from uh, training investigator sites, as well as just sort of reassessing what types of facilities uh, that, that companies will conduct trials in. But I, I think this is another emerging area as well, which is 
how, how to actually increase diversity. What what specific uh, strategies can companies employ to make sure they're they're hitting some of these targets? So with that, maybe just turn briefly to kind of some considerations outside the U.S. So Sarah, can you can you give us maybe a little bit more background on, on what some some of the implications of this uh, this new FDA guidance might be for studies conducted uh, outside the United States? Foreign drug makers that are seeking FDA approval of a product would be expected to submit a plan to FDA under the draft guidance, and as well as they would be required to ensure that the patient population is diverse enough to allow the data to be extrapolated uh, to the U.S. population. But very recently, FDA has expressed concern about data that is coming from a single country uh, for submissions in, for consider, in consideration of uh, potential approval of products by the agency. For example, this year, FDA declined to approve two oncology drugs where the pivotal trials were only conducted in China. And one of the companies actually completed a bridging study to show that the data could be extrapolated to the U.S. population, but FDA said that wasn't enough, and they are now requesting they conduct a multi-regional study uh, that would be a little bit more representative. And FDA actually requested that of both companies. But the bottom line here is that relying solely on foreign single population trials raises the issue of generalizability and applicability of the data to a U.S. population. And there may have been a little bit of confusion for some companies because the stance at the agency has changed a little bit, notably from Richard Pazder, who previously said that it, it might be okay for data to come from one country. But more recently, he said, in particular, specifically looking at Chinese data, that they are not generalizable for American cancer patients and they do not fulfill an unmet medical need in the U.S. And so um, this isn't in his prior statements and companies will have to be more careful about identifying their clinical sites globally when thinking about submitting data to FDA as a result. Every single country is is very different in that regard um, and or and we have so we really do have to think about that. In some regions racial and ethnic data are not traditionally captured and in more recent publications it's been reported that in Europe only two-thirds of pivotal clinical trials forming the basis of EMA approval reported any data on the race of the study participants and less than one-third contain information about their ethnicity. And again, I think some of that in part might be about how we as Americans define race and ethnicity versus other countries. So sponsors cannot rely on on foreign data, can't necessarily rely on foreign data for specific ethnic groups because of the differences of the ethnic groups from ex-U.S. countries in the U.S. So I was using Brazil and, you know, African countries as an example, because we are seeing more in global studies, we're seeing more companies utilizing sites in Brazil, utilizing sites in South Africa and, and other countries like that. And we can't necessarily rely on those data to be extrapolated to, uh, for example, the African-American 
American population in the U.S. So just companies being mindful of that, especially in light of, you know, this new frontier and how we're really thinking about and approaching clinical trial diversity, because traditionally it was, you know, we're running a global study, but, you know, and, and as we're looking at drilling down on how those data can be utilized we, companies have to you know, think twice about, you know, how they're strategizing enrollment and, and diversity in that regard. Thanks, Sarah. So, Stephanie, you, you mentioned earlier that, that there's some uh, legislation that's currently being discussed in, in Congress. Can you tell us a little bit more about uh, some of that legislation and, and how it might impact the sphere? So in the past year, there have been several bills submitted in Congress that are either solely focused on clinical trial diversity or large public health oriented bills with clinical trial diversity provisions. So I just wanted to touch on briefly two of the major pending bills that we have been keeping our eye on. So first there's the Prescription Drug User Fee Act or PDUFA reauthorization. And so PDUFA is an act that allows FDA to collect administrative fees from drug sponsors. It has a five year sunset provision. So the reauthorization year of which 2022 is one is a perfect time to add provisions that advance pressing health policy goals. And that's generally what we see. So one recent version of the bill would require sponsors to submit a diversity action plan to FDA, which is of course interesting because if this version of the bill gets passed, then the law's diversity action plan will probably look a lot similar to what we see in in FDA's April guidance document. Now the bill would also is, or I guess the current version of the bill would also direct FDA to assess whether it needs additional authorities to require sponsors to conduct post-marketing studies or surveillance on their approved drugs, should the sponsors not meet the enrollment goals laid out in the diversity action plans. So this could mean that we may see more teeth to FDA's approach to post-marketing requirements. PDUFA would also require HHS to set up workshops with patients and members of industry related to increasing diversity and encouraging participation from members of certain racial and ethnic groups. And FDA would also have to issue an annual report that would summarize the diversity action plan submitted by sponsors. So that's what's in the most recent version we have seen of PDUFA. Another bill that we have been keeping our eye on is Cures 2.0. Now, there has not been a lot of activity on this particular bill recently. And based on my view, I believe PDUFA takes a stronger, more direct approach to diversity than CURES in the current version of CURES that we have, mo- that we have most recently seen, as well as the re- version of PDUFA we have most recently seen. That said, CURES 2.0 is intended to be a follow-up to the 21st Century CURES Act passed under President Obama, which was a major piece of legislation with strong bipartisan support. So I think CURES 2.0 is is worth mentioning here, just based on that precedent. At this stage, CURES would require FDA and HHS to study efforts to address barriers to clinical trial participation and develop recommendations to decrease these barriers. FDA would also be charged to collaborate with industry about innovative approaches to decentralized clinical trials, which are frequently touted as a clinical trial diversity tool, and we're going to talk a lot about that soon. So as I mentioned, there's quite a few other standalone bills beyond PDUFA and CURES 2.0 that take other approaches to diversity. But all this to say, there's been quite a bit of activity on the hills thus far to address clinical trial diversity. Thank you, Stephanie. That's really helpful background. And, and Akosia, turning to you for a few minutes here, 
There's been a lot of discussion just about in, in the recent past about the so-called decentralized clinical trials, especially during the uh, the, the pandemic. But but I think there, there's sort of an interesting overlay between the uh, the initiatives around decentralized clinical trials as well as uh, some of these uh, topics we've been discussing here about uh, in enhancing the diversity of clinical studies. Can you can you tell us a little a little bit more about that? Yes, absolutely. Decentralized clinical trials, although it's a separate idea from clinical trials diversity, they often go hand in hand. And you even see in um, pieces of legislation such as the DEPICT Act, which focuses on diversity, and the Prevent Pandemics Act, which was passed in response to COVID-19. Decentralized trials is a concept that comes up a lot. And it, it comes up because it furthers a lot of the goals of diversity. So what is a decentralized clinical trial or a DCT? So DCTs are trials where some or all of the trial-related activities occur off-site. Now, this is not just one type of trial. I would, I would sort of view it as more of a collection of elements and, and initiatives that serve the goal of decentralizing the trial. So there can be trials that are completely done remotely, such as employing different, different kinds of initiatives, such as mobile delivery of study drugs to patients' homes and incorporation of telemedicine, which became way more common during the pandemic, and even in-nurse home visits in order to do patient assessments or leveraging uh, digital health platforms to create informed consent and patient recruitment platforms. But then sometimes there's more of like a hybrid decentralized clinical trial where you have some of these, you know, less complex procedures such as uh, taking people's vital signs and, and patient information. All of that is done in a telehealth setting and some of the simpler procedures are done maybe at home, but then someone might go to a minute clinic or a local hospital rather than a large research center to get more complex procedures um, or complex study testing done at an academic center. So it's really just a broad range of things. And the reason why this serves um, people of more diverse backgrounds um, is because geographic diversity is diversity in and of itself. And uh, in the same ways that we talk about racial diversity and we think about, you know, how redlining and, and other, other structural factors influence where people live and where academic centers are, which is often has racial implications, so too does uh, the rural versus urban divide. So people in more rural areas that don't have access to high quality um, academic centers and hospitals are able to participate as well. And then we even think about um, how disabled folks and, and folks who have trouble taking off from work or traveling to these sites um, because of different um, economic factors, um, they are able to also participate in these trials as well. And before the pandemic, this was more of a growing trend, but not every clinical trial used um, decentralized clinical trial tactics. But now it, during the pandemic, it almost became an imperative to keep these studies going. So I, I think that although not every trial is going to employ digital health, I, I, I absolutely think that some element of DCTs will, will be here to stay especially since, you know, it does reduce exposure to COVID-19 and other transmissible conditions. And uh, I, I think that one of the biggest 
things that industry will be looking out for is more targeted guidance from the FDA about how to implement these decentralized clinical trials. FDA did issue guidance during the COVID-19 pandemic, um, but that was more in a reactive measure. And, and I think that as we're starting to see more and more companies and, and a broader diversity of companies employing these different DCT methods, um, we're going to see a bunch of new questions come up about how to really control these trials and how to make it work for, for patients, for sponsors, and for investigators and for the FDA. Thanks, Sikosia. And, and maybe turning to a, a, another issue that, that we're getting a lot of questions about is how, how industry, the pharma and biotech industry, but, but in particular with a focus on smaller companies, how have they uh, reacted to the, uh, the proposals for more oversight in, in clinical trial diversity? I think that um, while it's important to note that some, uh, many members of industry have spearheaded their own initiatives for clinical trial diversity, and I'm speaking particularly about collaborations that we've seen between sponsors and, and colleges and academic centers, there is still some hesitance about how diversity plans will work in practice. I mean, as, as Stephanie and, and Sarah have teed up for me, some stakeholders are worried about creating more requirements and, and what the consequences are of not living up to those requirements um, in, a, in a diversity plan. And so even the, the vice president of pharma has, has spoken on this issue and said that, you know, this could have the, the effect of creating unfeasibly long studies um, and delayed access to medicines and could and actually disincentivize industries to invest in, in higher risk therapeutic areas if they have to then go through the, the extra administrative burden of figuring out how to recruit patients and properly document um, their, their efforts and then also you know, be held accountable to the FDA. So that's just one overarching issue. But then for smaller companies, you know, those, those post-marketing requirements that we've talked about earlier, they cost a lot of money and they, they take a lot of resources. And for smaller companies um, that might not have that, what will what will the post require? What will the post market requirements look like, and what will that enforcement um, um, area look like? I think a lot of smaller companies um, often make decisions based on other constraints. Um, for example, both small and large companies choose to set up clinical trials in in other parts of the world, and maybe for economic reasons. But again, as as Sarah mentioned, will those studies be amongst homogenous populations or more racially diverse populations. And even if they are diverse, can we extrapolate that data? Um, and then there's also the more practical concern of how to deal with third-party vendors. You know, when you have a completely on-site clinical trial, you have everyone from the patients to the investigators to the sponsors all working in the same area. Now, if you're, if you're throwing in in-home nursing agencies going into patients' homes, you know, how does that affect um, oversight and how, how can sponsors ensure that procedurally these clinical trials are sound um, and that they're creating, you know, valid and reliable data? Um, Although, on the other hand, that might create less administrative work for the investigators on site because through using other vendors and, and through having other parties and even the patients themselves performing a lot of this data verification, that could actually potentially make things easier. I, I think that there's a lot of unknowns in that space right now. Great. Thank you, Akosia. So, you know, 
there's an enormous amount of activity here in this space right now. And it, it's certainly an area that we're following very closely. And as, as Stephanie outlined a bit earlier, we're anticipating that there'll be some legislation uh, later this year. Assuming that happens, and we, we expect that it will, we anticipate that we'll come back and have another podcast to update everybody on, on what's happened and, and what new legislative developments that there have been later this year. So with that, that, that's it for today. If you do have any further questions for Stephanie, Sarah, Akosia, and me, uh, you can find the links to our CVs and bios in the show notes, as well as uh, other interesting information, including our newest edition of the uh, Life Sciences and Healthcare Horizons brochure. If you haven't subscribed already, uh, please do so. And so you're not missing out on future episodes, uh, follow our LinkedIn page where we share lots of interesting content every day. We look forward to having you here again when we're talking the cure. Until then, take care.